Reagan, Iran-Contra, arms deal Nicaragua, Libya, Lockerbie, Pan Am Flight 103, George H.W., Dukakis, Roseanne, and Roger Rabbit. it's a new episode of Year View Mirror. We'll talk Die Hard and the Wonder Years. Plus, when Ken had his first date, all in 88. Welcome to another episode of Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff. I'm Cliff. We're a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. And I'm Ken. In each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. 1988 was a big year for media releases, especially music, so Ken and I have decided to split the show into two parts. Part one features film and television, and part two will feature music only. We did the same thing for 1971. Yep. For this show, part one will be featuring the films Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, and Die Hard. And for television, we're profiling Roseanne and The Wonder Years. For music, well, you'll just have to check out part two of 1988. But first, let's go through some of the most important events of 1988. For a good chunk of 1988, the country was riveted to their TV sets. Well, I know I was as a 28-year-old. I found the Iran-Contra hearings fascinating for some reason at 28 years old. The Iran-Contra hearings played out in Washington, D.C. The Iran-Contra affair was a scandal that involved the illegal sales of arms to Iran in exchange for U.S. hostages being held in Lebanon by Iranian terrorists. The money from the Iranian arms sales was then used to illegally fund and aid the Contras, a Nicaraguan rebel group led by CIA operatives. The illegal activities were exposed and several top Reagan administration officials were implicated, but only one person actually ended up receiving jail time. Reagan definitely had egg on his face, but he escaped any direct links to the scandal. Late in 1988, a Pan Am 747 flying over Scotland exploded in midair when a bomb that was planted on board blew up, killing all on board and 11 people on the ground when the plane crashed in a residential street in Lockerbie. Overall, 270 people died, including 189 Americans, and it remains the deadliest terrorist attack in the history of the United Kingdom. Two individuals of Libyan descent were convicted in the bombing, one of whom was given a life sentence. In 2003, the government of Libya formally admitted responsibility for Pan Am Flight 103. Here's a story that at the time wasn't necessarily major uh, in 1988, but trust me, it is going to hasten the end of the Cold War. The United States signed the INF Treaty, which stands for the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Sounds boring, but basically it banned U.S. and Soviet-based ballistic missiles with ranges from anywhere between 300 to 3,000 miles. Ballistic missiles, by the way, are nuclear-tipped missiles. They're, They're bad. Are those like the, what are the ones that are, oh, that's, I'm thinking ribbed for her pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) In less than three years after the treaty, both nations had eliminated over 2,600 ballistic missiles. That's a big deal, right? However, the bigger deal was that this diplomatic maneuver was one step closer to the eventual demise of the Soviet empire, which would occur only three years later. And in the 1988 presidential election, Republican Vice President George H.W. Bush 
defeated Democratic Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts. Bush won the popular vote by just under eight points and won 426 of the 538 electoral votes. Bush's victory remains the only time since Harry S. Truman's victory in the 1948 presidential election in which either party won more than two consecutive presidential elections. The Democrats retained control of both houses of Congress. Cliff, let's talk movies from 1988. We're going to tackle three. Die Hard, Coming to America, and the number one box office hit of 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is where we'll begin. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a live-action animated comedy mystery directed by Robert Zemeckis, who would also then go on to direct Forrest Gump. The story is set in a 1947 version of Hollywood where cartoon characters and people coexist. The film follows Eddie Valiant, played by the British actor Bob Hoskins. He's a private investigator who must exonerate Roger Rabbit, a toon who has been framed for the murder of the Acme Corporation's owner. Let's listen to the film's original trailer to find clues as to why this film was the number one film that year. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay out. named Eddie Valiant. It's a motion picture about friendship. Love. <laughs> Compassion. Murder. Marvin Acme, the rabbit, cacked him last night. Sex. I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant. Anything. And violence. <laughs> Cliff, you had never seen the movie before. That's I also right. know that you are not an animation guy. I That's am. Right. I saw it at the time of the film's release, but never saw it again until recently for the show. What's your theory, Cliff, about why the movie-going public in 1988 was so drawn to this film? This movie was a novelty, and Americans love novelty. Whether it's a way to grill indoors without the mess of charcoal or propane or some kind of fire. The George Foreman grill. Thank you. Uh, or a versatile stain remover powerful enough to clean both your clothes and your car's engine. We are suckers for the new. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit was definitely something we hadn't seen before. One of the things that struck me when I first saw it, and even watching it again 34 years later, was this amazing seamless quality of integrating live action with animated action. Obviously, the technology of animation and film has made enormous strides over the 34 years since the film came out. So I really appreciated this film from a technical point of view. I found this really interesting interview with director Robert Zemeckis and the lead animator Richard Williams, who break down that unbelievably complex process. Um, when you see the film, you'll see that the cartoon characters move uh, things in the three-dimensional world. So everything had to be plotted out very meticulously so that sets could be rigged and special effects technicians would know what they had to do. So we knew generally uh, where, where physically the cartoon character would be. We had the voice of the cartoon characters on the set. We basically um, shot the live-action movie so that when the raw film came back, it sort of looked like an Invisible Man movie. By the time the film got to me, we had floating coffee cups and chairs spinning and windows smashing, and then we'd draw over the frames. We'd get blow-up frames of the live action and draw the rabbit on top of it. Believe it or not, 
the very first film that integrated live action with animation goes back to the year 1900. And there had been a number of films before Roger Rabbit that did a respectable job of this process, most notably Mary Poppins and Pete's Dragon from the Disney studios. But even in those films, the characters kind of looked like they were pasted onto the frame. Roger Rabbit raised the bar in a very big way, paving the way for films like Space Jam and Scooby-Doo. I mean, Cliff, you had to admire the technical virtuosity of that film. Sure, I have to admire the technical virtuosity of it, Ken. But seeing as it paved the way for likewise detestable films such as Space Jam and Scooby-Doo, I wish some road crew would have come along and tore up that highway soon after Whom Framed Roger Rabbit left theaters. Hey, let's move over to Die Hard, a film that I'm embarrassed to say I only saw for the first time for this podcast. You should be embarrassed. I I don't know how that happened. You know, of course, I saw bits and pieces on TV through the years, but never from a beginning to end experience. Your American citizenship should be revoked. The story of Die Hard follows New York City police detective John McClane, played by the perfectly cast Bruce Willis, who is caught up in a terrorist takeover of a Los Angeles skyscraper while visiting his estranged wife. It sounds stupid when I hear it out loud, but really, that's the entire story Mm -hmm. of Die Hard. Let's listen to a piece from the film's original trailer. This is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! He'll never forget. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to the party, pal! This Christmas... It's a time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Get ready to jingle some bells. And deck the halls. With bows of Bruce Willis. Went to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Cliff, the question I'm going to ask you is the most often asked question regarding this movie. Die Hard, Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie? It's most certainly a Christmas movie. Okay. Every year, millions of Americans go through hell to get to their loved ones in time for the holidays. Yeah. And being home for Christmas is almost a fucking law in America. (laughs) If you have to kill a few European ultra thieves and and blow up half a skyscraper in the process, so be it. Yeah. You got to get home for Christmas. Yeah. Definitely a Christmas movie. Naively, I would sit around with people when that issue was discussed and I would always say, absolutely not a Christmas movie, but I had never seen it. But now that I have seen it, I can attest. It is a Christmas movie. McLean was a different kind of action hero relative to the typical heroes of the 1980s. And I'm thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Chuck Norris. He's a fallible, reluctant hero. Someone who had never been a hero before, but is thrown into a situation that brings out the hero in him. Let's listen to a fabulous scene between McLean and the main villain, masterfully played by the great Alan Rickman, whose career skyrocketed, by the way, after his depiction of Hans Gruber. Mr. Mr. Guest, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? 
many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. The film was chock full of clever one-liners like that one. Watching this movie 34 years after its release on my iPad on a plane definitely jaded my perspective. I'm sure seeing it on the big screen in a crowded theater would have been very, very compelling in 1988. Do you know that Die Hard 2 takes place at an airport? I did not know that. I thought the politics of Die Hard was really, really interesting. What's up with the collection of gangsters that took over this skyscraper? They were this odd mishmash of blue-eyed German Aryan macho men, one or two Asian dudes. I think there was was only one Asian dude. Oh, there was only one Asian dude. And some nerdy black hacker guy. It was an odd collection of thieves. And then you got... Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, who was this suave, calculating German bad guy who clearly had strong disdain for America. At one point in the film, he called the U.S. a bankrupt nation. Was he, I, is he a communist? He Well, I mean, in 1988, you know, the with Reagan's America, there was a, an unwavering patriotic zeal for America. So Hans Gruber calling the United States, a bankrupt nation, that was a pretty sharp slap in the face or kick in the American nuts. Oh, you're getting me so fired up, Ken. (laughs) He also accused the American State Department of rattling its saber for its own ends. And now he wanted the State Department to rattle that saber for him, which I thought was a very provocative line in the movie and clearly written to heighten this enigmatic character because he's not necessarily a political terrorist, which we in the 21st century have become, you know, much more familiar with. He's just an exceptional thief, uh, as he called himself. There's Bruce Willis's estranged wife who had this high-powered executive position, which clearly contributed to their dissolved marriage. There's this obnoxious yuppie executive co-worker who eventually gets executed for basically being a yuppie dick. There's the deputy police chief who's clearly an incompetent buffoon and who panders to the FBI. And then, of course, you have the two FBI agents, Johnson and Johnson, which was actually a pretty funny comedic element, Johnson and Johnson. They were even more incompetent than the deputy chief and who end up getting killed due to their own hubris. All in all, this movie did not paint a pretty picture of bureaucratic law enforcement, corporate executives, German bodybuilders, or European villains who have a thing for crashing Christmas parties. (laughs) But thank God an American cowboy arrived and saved the day and his marriage. This idea of the cowboy comes up throughout the film. Yes. I wanted to ask you this. Yeah. Is Die Hard a Western? You know, I didn't really think about it upon finishing it for the first time uh, recently, watching Die Hard as a a parable uh, sort of done uh, as a contemporary Western. A lot of the Western heroes from not just contemporary, but back in the day of Clint Eastwood's early ones, particularly, but even before that, is that they weren't always so clear-cut good. Sometimes you would be going like, it's questionable your own behavior, but you're the one who's supposed to be the good guy, so I'm going with it. And so, you know, I think in terms of the landscape as well, 
I mean, if you think of the typical Western, is a uh, supposed to be it's a desert. It's supposed to be our Southwest. You know, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. Yeah, the landscape of Die Hard is inside this building that's not completely finished. Mm-hmm. And John McClane, the Will- Bruce Willis character, spends a lot of his time in that desolate, not completed sparsely populated you know mm-hmm. there's hardly anything yeah. in it area mm-hmm. right it's also where a lot of the shootouts yeah occur yeah speaking of the politics and your maybe bafflement by it this movie debuted at the end of ronald reagan's greed is good 1980s america mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so at first glance it seems more than right that we as viewers should root for John McClane to take down the bad guys and save the super rich international corporation so it can live to make tons more money another day while destroying whole communities and environments in the process. But if greed is good, and the good guys in America are the ones who find new and innovative ways to make gobs of dough by doing very little, shouldn't we be rooting for Hans Gruber and his crafty corporate raiders? I mean, aren't they the big shorts, if you will? They're the derivatives magicians who profited wonderfully from Reagan's deregulation of the finance industry and pretty much fucked late 20th century, early 21st century Americans for the foreseeable future. Speaking of the U.S. as a bankrupt nation, Hans surely isn't talking about our pocketbook, but our morals and values. Yeah. I mean, just think about it, Ken. A sitting American president illegally sells arms to another country in the Middle East then uses the funds to illegally aid a right-wing rebel group in another country in Latin America in its attempts to overthrow the democratically elected government of that country. And nothing fucking happens to him. Yeah. We have one more film to talk about for 1988, and I promise it's going to be short, because Cliff and I are in agreement that this film is one of the worst comedies of the 1990s, and yet it was one of the biggest box office successes from that year. The movie is coming to America with Eddie Murphy. One of the worst comedies of the 90s. It's one of the worst. It's not even a comedy, Ken. (laughs) It's not even a comedy. Uh, Yeah, it was a horrible movie. It made more horrible because Eddie Murphy is in it. I know. I felt bad for Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy plays Akeem Jaffer, the crown prince of the fictional African nation of Zumanda. And he travels to the United States in the hopes of finding a woman he can marry and love for who she is, not for her status or having been trained to please him. Cliff, in a break from what we typically do when we talk about movies, instead of playing a clip from the film's official trailer, I decided to play a clip from the first link that appeared when I did a YouTube search of, quote, these were, these were the keywords I entered, mm-hmm. coming to America's funniest scene. And your, your results should have been nothing because there is not yeah. any funny scene. Uh, there, the first link is the one that we're going to be okay. uh, listening to. In this scene, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are getting trained for their first day on the job at a local fast food restaurant in a Queens, New York City neighborhood. By the way, you might pause it here. Go to the bathroom because you might just pee in your pants. That's sarcasm, right? Yeah. Look, being a McDonald's people, we got this little misunderstanding. Hmm? See, they're McDonald's. I'm McDowell's. They got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. (laughs) Now, see, they got the Big Mac. I got the Big Mick. We both got two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions. But... 
They use a sesame seed bun. My buns have no seeds. I only watched this movie for the first time. I'm once again. I don't know what. I, I guess I wasn't going to the movies much in 1988 because I didn't see Die Hard in 1988. I didn't see Coming to America. Cliff, I do not get why this movie was so popular. It was a one of. The, I think it was the second top grossing movie of of the year. Shed some light, Cliff, on why this film is so revered. Is it the same theory that you posited for the Roger Rabbit? Because people are stupid. That Americans are just stupid. I argue that we shouldn't even be talking about this this movie at all. Yeah. I think even bringing it up is it, it, it gives it, it, it credence. It gives it credence, and yeah. it should have no credence whatsoever. And we can't even contextualize it because you could say, you know, I thought I go, well, it's coming to America. It's 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 the immigrant story, but it's not. They're not him and Arsenio Hall, who plays like his best friend. It is his his, his or his it's his like manservant, yeah. right? Um, they're not your typical immigrants. They're super duper rich who have just come here to play like they're immigrants. Yeah. No, this is not an immigrant story. <laughs> no, this this is I couldn't <laughs> I can't make any I can't make any historical sense out of it. I can't make any pop culture sense out of it besides really, it's hubris. You realize everyone's just cashing in. So you didn't see the sequel. <laughs> there is there is a sequel there is a sequel a recent one like it just yeah it, they just, it just decided, came out within the last you know couple there might two be years. a chance for that let's talk television in 1988 two family sitcoms debuted one set in the present of 1988 and that was roseanne and one set in the late 1960s the wonder years both shows represented something very important about the post-World War II 20th century American family. The Wonder Years was more nostalgic. It was innocent, reverential. Roseanne yeah, had a blue-collar edginess to it that definitely resonated with middle America. Let's dig into Roseanne first. The show was created by Matt Williams and Roseanne Barr, who by 1988 was a successful stand-up comedian. Barr starred as Roseanne Connor, and the show revolved around her family in the fictional town of Lanford, Illinois. Nothing in the world is more rewarding than motherhood. You teach, you love, you care, you nurture, and you watch them grow stronger, healthier, and more lovely every day. Excuse me. How many times do I have to tell you no fighting in the house? Anyway, the best part about raising a family is that your husband's always there, day in, day out. Oh, he's more than just my partner and my lover. He's my soulmate. What you didn't see in that spot was Roseanne's kids in the background causing havoc and her husband, Dan, mouthing the words soulmate in a disbelieving way at the end of the clip. Roseanne offered a rare public admission in the midst of the religious rights family crusades of the 1980s that parenthood and marriage could be a challenging soul-sapping affair, especially when you throw in a low-wage job or two into the mix. I didn't watch it much. Uh, I was not a fan of Roseanne's stand-up, but I saw enough of it at the time, and I did watch some more um, to get ready for this podcast, to understand that this show is certainly not the Cosby show. Yeah. Dan, the husband, isn't a doctor. Roseanne, the mom, isn't a lawyer. Unlike the Huxtables, the Connor family face real economic hardships. Um, they're like a late 1980s version of the Bunkers, except unlike the Bunkers, both parents in this situation have to work to make ends meet. I thought the, the show's depiction of, of middle-class life was 
I mean, since I grew up in a middle class household and continue to live in a middle class household, I thought it was pretty realistic. And the fact that both Roseanne and Dan uh, struggled with their weight. Yeah. Gave the show an added touch of authenticity. Yeah. They were, they were like real people. Yeah. This and, was a, 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 this show reeked working class. Right. You know, I think it's admirable for the way it was kind of a refusal of the whole having it all con. Yeah. You know, where I've got a husband and a, or the husband says, I got the wife and I've got the kids and we've got a house and we've got everything. Right. Yeah. This idea, it became a way of pushing back against the guilt and unrealistic expectations of perfect motherhood. Yeah. This idea that, I'm not going to do everything right. It's refreshing to yeah. see. Mom, tell her to get out of my chair. Mom, tell her I was here first. Mom, tell her she's lying. DJ, tell your sisters to shut up. Shut up. <laughs> oh, great. I'm just going to look like a freak. That's all. What else is new? Shut up. This is why some animals eat their young. <laughs> Mother, father, you're right. I was a fool. I'll never smoke again. Good. Now get out of here before I crush your skull. Couldn't they never run like that when I come home? They do, Dan. It's just in the opposite direction. It's you know, it's impressive the way she always manages to. They or her and Dan manage to keep the family afloat by uh, she supports her kids through uh, elopements pregnancy, disappointments, and she bolsters her husband through job loss, depression, and illness. Cliff, let's talk about another show that debuted in 1988. It's called The Wonder Years, a coming-of-age sitcom which ran from 1988 until 1993. The series starred Fred Savage as Kevin Arnold, a teenager growing up in a suburban middle-class family in the late 1960s and early 70s. Let's listen to a short promo that aired during the broadcast of that year's Super Bowl. 1968 was the year Vince Lombardi's Packers beat Al Davis's Raiders in Super Bowl II. I was just 12 years old and getting psyched up for junior high. But I bet I played football better than Elway then. Of course, John Elway was only seven. Looking back, the 1968 Super Bowl didn't seem like such a big deal. But then in 1968, I wasn't such a big deal either. Those sure were great years to be alive. The Wonder Years, a special preview of a new kind of comedy, tonight after the Super Bowl. Cliff, that clip pretty much encapsulates the entire series. It's about the nostalgia of a time not that long ago, only 20 years before 1988, and the bliss and joy of growing up during that time. However, as we've already talked about on this show, that period of history really wasn't all that blissful and joyful, at least from a larger societal picture. You had the ongoing Vietnam War, post-civil rights movement turmoil, the feminist movement, youth counterculture protests, and decadence. Why do you think this show resonated with so many people in the late 80s and early 90s? I think you answered your own question with that one word, nostalgia. Yeah. As I've recently learned, I was reading this book uh, from Kurt Anderson. It was a 2020 book called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. That starting in the 1970s, the political right, the super rich, and big business deliberately exploited America's penchant for the good old days, to help them sell their vision of the country's future, which was essentially a return to America's past. To quote from the synopsis of the book on the author's website, During the 1970s and 80s, the clock was turned back on a century of economic progress, making greed good, workers powerless, and the market all-powerful while weaponizing nostalgia. 
lifting up an oligarchy that served only its own interests and leaving the huge majority of Americans with dwindling economic prospects and hope. In other words, this is me speaking, think Ronald Reagan's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that the creators of the Wonder Years were part of some right-wing conspiracy to blind us all with memories of the way things used to be yeah. so our government and corporations could take us back to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But the success of the show and other back-to-the-good-old-days sitcoms like Happy Days and films such as American Graffiti speak volumes about our culture's longing for the good things from the past and our ability to gloss over the bad things from that past. Yeah. And in 2022, after Trump made America great again, again, yeah, it's clear to see that, by and large, Americans just can't seem to resist the urge to roll the clocks backward no matter what it does to our future. Yeah. Two other points I would like to make about the Wonder Years. The Wonder Years captures the adolescence of those folks at the latter end of the baby boom. And as we all know, those folks make up a shitload of Americans. Including me. Right. So the Kevin Arnolds of 1988 would be 30-somethings with families and jobs of their own. And so they could identify with both the lives of the kids and those of the parents. So I think that was something that was critical to a success and the other thing is that the show follows kevin through junior high school and 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 high school a difficult but amusing time for all of us so it's not hard to imagine this show or something similar to it airing today and reaching a wide audience yeah well i mean the series stranger things is in fact a return back to this have, 70s oh, 80s i haven't seen era. it yet. more 80s well, I was gonna say, uh, but stranger is, th- we are going to talk about stranger things in the future because it I'm is a it. wildly successful series no, I've, for I've, netflix I've, I've heard let's listen to a clip from the ending of the show's pilot episode it features kevin and winnie who was uh uh kevin's sort of heartthrob neighborhood heartthrob and it features the adult voice narrator of kevin voiced by the actor Daniel Stern. It was the first kiss for both of us. We never really talked about it afterward. But I think about the events of that day again and again, and somehow I know that Winnie does too. Whenever some blowhard starts talking about the anonymity of the suburbs or the mindlessness of the TV generation. Because we know that inside each one of those identical boxes, with its Dodge parked out front and its white bread on the table, and its TV set glowing blue in the falling dusk. There were people with stories. There were families bound together in the pain and the struggle of love. There were moments that made us cry with laughter. And there were moments like that one of sorrow and wonder. I actually remember watching that episode when it first aired, and I kind of got choked up even now listening to it. It was a moving scene, of course, It has a lot to do with using Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman, but there was a tenderness in the Wonder Years that was really endearing. Did you know that the show's title was a satirical nod to a famous 1970s Wonder Bread ad campaign promoting the highly processed white bread as, as perfect for the Wonder Years, ages 1 through 12? That's where they got the name from. Well, now you've just... You've reduced this heartfelt nostalgic appeal for a time that i look back on so fondly and reduced it down to processed white bread as we said at the start of the show we've decided to split 1988 into two parts 
we've reached the end of part one, but before we sign off, I'm going to share my favorite entertainment release from 1988, and then Cliff will share his at the end of part two. I'm going with a sentimental pick. You're a sentimental guy. 1988 was a big year for me. (laughs) And I went to go see a movie. Uh Uh-huh. On February 26, uh-huh. 1988. February 26, 1988. Okay. It was the premiere of the Harrison Ford movie, Frantic, which was directed by Roman Polanski. This mm-hmm. movie was the first date that I ever had with Stacy, my now wife of 33 plus years. The movie, mediocre, just okay. Uh, It's an interesting mystery thriller about a missing wife. But nevertheless, romantic magic happened that night, February 26, 1988. And by the end of 1988, I would be engaged to her. I know, that was a very fast romance. And we've been married for 33 awesome years. Trust me, Frantic does not describe 33 years of marriage. But this movie will hold a special place in my heart. You should definitely check out part two of our focus on 1988. We picked 12 overall, and they feature such diverse artists as Tracy Chapman, Metallica, Michael Jackson, Guns N' Roses, and N.W.A. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in this episode, the history, films, music, and TV discussed, please visit our website, kenandcliff.com. You'll find links to additional reading, Spotify song lists, letterbox lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and don't like about the show. Please share your view mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends and family. You can always find us on kenandcliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Your View Mirror with Ken and Cliff.